Last week we looked at uh, 1 Peter, and uh, when you come to 2 Peter, it starts off with this statement, Simon Peter, a servant, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to them that have obtained like precious faith uh, with usward through righteousness of God our Savior, grace and peace be multiplied unto you through our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, you, you go through this and you kind of go, okay, so this is a second letter that the Apostle Peter wrote to this. Um, you say, how do you know this? There's not really a lot of information there, but if you go to chapter 3 and verse 1, he says this, this second epistle beloved, I now write unto you. You know, sometimes you wonder, why did they choose 1 Peter and 2 Peter? You know, was, you know, was it time-wise? Well, we do, because the first one we have. And if this is the second one, Paul didn't say who he's writing to, but we know from last week that Peter wrote to people who were in modern-day Turkey. You start the letter off last time, and you've got regions like Bithynia and uh, places like that. It's on the northern side of Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, uh, and it's a letter that's written to Jews that would have been in that region uh, and to Gentiles because there are some things that deal with Gentiles, but they would have understood the principle of being strangers and pilgrims, living in a land that's really not their homeland, that type of thing. And so Peter's writing a second letter to them, uh, and you say, what's the time frame? Okay, the time frame that we said that the first one was written was probably about uh, 63 to 65, maybe. Uh, many scholars say because Paul indica- or Peter indicates in the letter that he knows he's about to die. Okay, the Lord has revealed to him he's about to die in this letter. Um, that it's probably closer to 67 A.D., which is about the time that most people say that Peter is executed, either 67 or 68 A.D. Uh, for this. So, um, this is when this letter is written. It's after Nero's persecutions. That's why Peter would have been imprisoned. Uh, not that it says that he's imprisoned here, but he says, I'm about to die, so he's about to be taken. Uh, and that time that he was taken was when Nero was upset with, well, himself for being caught. Uh, so he blamed the Christians for burning down Rome um, and did that. So uh, this is about the time that's written. Okay, there are several themes that go through this letter. Okay, one of them, as you read through it, uh, and you may catch it in certain ways, shapes, and forms, but it's the idea of know or knowledge, this type of term that's used over and over again. Um, Some of you have been to Camp Joy long enough that uh, it is not difficult for you to remember the very last verse of 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 18, but grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Savior, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Yeah. To Him be glory forever. Amen. So, yeah, uh, but grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior. What he's saying is, okay, the thing I talked about before about having knowledge and all of this, uh, you need to have this. 16 times there is this idea of knowing. You're able to know something. You've got knowledge. Uh, you've got this ability as a Christian. Knowledge comes through teachings and writings that people have in the Word of God. The Word of God is inspired. We'll re- read this passage as we get to it uh, in our notes. Uh, but the Word of God's inspired. Uh, Peter made clear that not only the Old Testament is inspired, but even the apostles and 
Paul's writings are Scripture. Okay? You say, how does he prove that? Well, he talks about when he gets to the uh, end of the book that false teachers take uh, Paul's writings and rest them, twist them to their own danger and destruction. And you're going, oh, Peter's putting what Paul is writing on the level of Scripture. The false teachers are taking this and twisting this. And so uh, even at this point, it kind of is one of these passages that you say, we know the Old Testament's inspired and, and Scripture. What about these New Testament passages? And Peter in this letter is indicating that in his time, he's already considering Paul's letter to be, Paul's letter to be inspired Scripture uh, and the like. So they have this ability to know. Paul expressed the need for knowledge because of the abundance of false teachers in the world. There's a lot of misinformation okay, in this world. The false teachers, if Paul, as Peter's going to mention, will live immoral lives, teach against all kinds of Bible doctrine. The one doctrine that Peter foresaw the false teachers denying, they deny a few things, but the major thing they deny is that Christ is coming back. Okay, because false teachers claim all sorts of things, that Jesus isn't God. He really didn't die on the cross. He's, you know, he is merely a ghost, and so he's really not coming back. I mean, there's all sorts of things as you read through the New Testament false teachers proclaim about Christ. But the one thing that they don't want happening is Christ coming back, because if Christ really is coming back, the things they're teaching, they're in trouble for. And so if they can reason away with people that Christ isn't coming back, it's okay for them to live the way they want to uh, and uh, to live that way. Uh, Peter gives one of the clearest descriptions of what happens in the day of the Lord when God judges the world. He's not just merely coming back. He's coming to, well, do a second time what he did already, and that was to destroy or it did not destroy. He flooded the whole of the earth, but this time he's just going to vaporize the whole universe and create new heavens and new earth. You have that description in this letter. Now, a specific theme for the book could simply be this, a knowledgeable Christianity. Okay, a knowledgeable Christianity is prepared for false teachers and the future. And so if you've got a knowledge, then you're prepared. And so this is what you have uh, in this book Make sure you have knowledge. As you start this uh, book off, it just simply, in the first chapter, I'm putting it this way, that you have the knowledge of things that are right. Okay? As we talk about this, how do people spot counterfeits? And how do bankers spot counterfeits? It's not because they go and say, hey, look at how this person printed this money, this fake money. No, they have them deal with the real stuff, the right stuff. And as such, so it is the Christian, there is the ability to know the good stuff. And he starts off right from the beginning. Verse number two, Second Peter chapter one, he says this, grace and peace be multiplied unto you through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. So right from the beginning, you go, hey, you have grace and peace, and you go, how do I have this? Because you know things about God, and you know things about His Son. But then he goes this this way, verse 3. This is a verse I learned in, um, I guess I probably had been aware of it before, but 
uh, when I took a class in college on counseling. Okay, and this is the verse they had us memorize right up front. Because what he says is this, verse 3, according as his divine power hath given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness through the knowledge of him that hath called us unto uh, to glory and virtue. See what it says here, that God by his power has given us all things that pertain unto life and godliness. You go, what is life? Life is me living out my life amongst people here, myself and with everybody else. I've got all the things I need to know how to live rightly there, and I also have the ability to live godly. You go, what's that? Live right in relation to God. He doesn't say that I have knowledge, I have knowledge about what atoms are like. Or certain events in history. Okay? The scripture is not given to us, the word of God is not given to us to give us answers on math problems, English assignments, these type of things. Though it, sometimes it can help with that, that. But what the scripture is given for us is so that we can live lives that are pleasing to God in relation to everybody else and to Him. He's given us everything we need. We don't need further revelation. What we have right here in the Word of God, because you can get to the end of the chapter and say, this is the most sufficient thing that you have for you to live godly and for you to live in a manner that is pleasing to everybody else. You have that. It's given to you. And so what he starts with is this, is the believer can take comfort that God has given us everything that we need in order to live the Christian life. God's precious promises are things to stand upon. Besides, this God is developing certain characteristics in each believer, and these characteristics will help to keep a believer from falling. Not only is God saying, I've got this word that I've given to you, you've got everything you need to live in order to, for, for life and godliness, but also look at this. You've been given precious promises, verse 5. Besides this, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, and virtue knowledge, and knowledge temperance, and temperance patience, and to patience godliness, and to godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness charity, or we would say love. For if these things be in you and abound, they make you that ye shall neither be barren or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ." But, verse 9, he that is uh, lack at these things is blind and cannot see afar off. Some of you understand what that is. You've been told that you're myopic. That's the Greek word there. You can't see far off. You go, what is that? You're nearsighted. And have forgotten that he was purged of his old sins. Okay, see, what God is doing is that, okay, he's given you precious promises in his word, but then what he's doing is that he's working on you to change you. Okay, not only were you just left with the word of God, there's a process that's going on. Some of you talked to, the ladies talked about this, and the men are going to talk about this on, on Saturday, is this idea of progressive sanctification. God is doing something in us to change us. Our destiny has changed. Okay, when we got saved, the point of salvation, you are going to be in heaven someday with God. Your destination changed. You don't have to face eternal punishment. But you are being conformed more to the image of Christ. 
That's what God is doing in this life. All of the things that go on, you're looking like his son, and you go, well, all of these are characteristics that reflect what the son is like. And so what God does is that he gives us the word, he's developing certain characteristics in us to help us to keep us from falling. And so as you go through this, you go, okay, that's good. Now, some of the false teachers are going to deny that Christ is coming again. They call these things fables. And as you go through, look at verse number 16. You know, you need to have knowledge and you need to be growing in Christian life. Let's actually go back to verse 14. Peter says this, knowing that shortly I must put off my, this my tabernacle. I'm going to die. I'm going to shed this uh, skin I'm in. My soul and spirit's going to go somewhere else because I'm going to die. Even as our Lord Jesus Christ has showed me, moreover, I will endeavor that ye may be able after my decease to have these things always in remembrance. He's basically saying, I'm giving you this and I'm putting it in writing. You now have something that is given to me by God. You have it. I'm putting it into writing. Okay, continue on. For we have not followed cunningly devised fables when we made known unto you the power of the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received from God the Father honor and glory when there came such a voice to him from the excellent glory, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And this voice which came from heaven we heard and when we were with him in the holy mount." Okay, what is he saying? What event is he talking about in his life? To him, this is, this is by far the most dramatic experience in his life probably, outside of seeing the resurrected Christ. It's the transfiguration. That's what he's talking about. He had the experience where for a few seconds he was able to see Jesus in unveiled glory. He got to see what Christ was like in heaven. He's talking with Moses and Elijah, and Peter was so amazed by this. And you say, well, how do we know this? This is the point where he once again sticks his foot in his mouth and goes, hey, let's make three tabernacles, one for Elijah, one for Moses, and one for Jesus. And, and there's this cloud that comes in between it and stops that. And then this statement this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Hear him. And when the cloud disappears, all that's there is Jesus. Now, Peter said, that's an experience that changed me because I saw the glorified Christ. And we might be sitting and going, oh, man, you know, I'd really believe in Jesus if I had an experience like that. You know, if, if the skies would rend and, you know, all of a sudden the angels would come out and the choir would be there and there's Jesus and we'd be like, yay! You know, I really, you know, I really believe that he is. And Peter goes, no, you got something more valuable than what I have as far as an experience. You go, what's that? Look at verse number 20. Or 19. We also, or we have also a more sure word of prophecy Wherein to too you do well that you take heed, as unto a light that shineth in a dark place, unto the day dawn, the day star arise in your heart, knowing this first, 
that no prophecy of the Scripture is of any private interpretation, for the prophecy came not in old time by the will of men, man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. But he says this, what you've got in your hand is not something that some person created. It's not of one's own interpretation, their private interpretation. They go, hey, you know what, I'm going to write something religious today. You know. No. What you have in your hand when it comes to the Scripture is something that God took the Holy Spirit, and you see that it's described this way, that they were moved by the Holy Ghost. That's the idea of bearing along something. It's, it's used to describe a boat being moved along by a wind in a certain direction. Okay? The wind pushes it in a direction. What you have here is the Holy Spirit, the Holy Breath, if you want to call it that, uh, this individual who was breathing on these men and moved them in the direction that they were supposed to go, and they gave us what you need to know. That you have exactly what God wants you to know because these men weren't just making this up. God, the Holy Spirit, was bearing them along, moving them along, and they gave you exactly what you need. You don't need an experience. You don't need some sort of radical event. Everything that you need, if you look here, you'll have everything that pertains into life and godliness. You'll be able to live life the way you're supposed to and live right towards God. You go, wait, why? Well, I live right to God because God makes very clear you need to hear my beloved son. You know, hear him, accept him. That's how you become godly. You accept this one, and God says, Okay, I accept you on the basis of my son. So, right from the beginning, Peter's dying and he's going, Okay, you're hoping for some sort of experience and you don't have to worry about it. What you've got in your hands when it comes to the Old Testament scriptures and even the things that I'm writing to you and even the things that Paul writes into you, these are sufficient for you to be able to live the way you're supposed to in every situation. You got it. What more do you need? How firm a foundation is laid for our faith in his excellent word. Okay? So, Peter, he gets done with this and give you the notes here, okay? These false teachers were willing to call some of these stories of Christ fables, myths. Peter could by experience say that he had seen Christ unveil glory at the transfiguration. He knew that Christ was divine. However, all believers have something more solid than Peter's experience. They have the scriptures. In this case, the emphasis is on the Old Testament part of it, that are inspired by the Spirit of God, which can give them all sorts of knowledge of Christ and his coming. So you could stop right there and go, praise the Lord, we got the Bible, and, but what Peter's going to do now is say, okay, this is why you need to have knowledge and the scripture like you have, because there is another group coming along, and this is where we come, knowledge of what is wrong. Understand there are people out there that are going to challenge what you believe. They're going to go the opposite direction of what's right. I mean, just think about this. You get done about this passage about, okay, the prophecy came out in old time, and just read right into the next verse. But there were false prophets also among the people, even as there shall be false teachers among you who privily shall bring in damnable heresies, even denying the Lord that bought them and bring upon themselves swift destruction. And many shall follow their pernicious ways by reason of whom the way of truth shall be evil spoken of. 
and through covetousness shall they with feigned words. You go, what's that? Um, it's the word we get plastic from. You know, you can do it with plastic, you can shape it. Well, they have these feigned words, these words that they shape for the situation they're in. They make merchandise of you, whose judgment now of a long time lingereth not, and their damnation slumbereth not. So he just simply goes, you got people who are going to come in and are going to declare things for their own selfish gain. Peter warns false teachers who come to the church. They're propagating teaching that denies certain truths such as Christ's atonement, and they do this for their own self-profit. It gains them something. It either gains them a following of people, you know, they feel better about themselves because they have people following them, or they're getting uh, funded for this because people are going, okay, you know, this is what we're supposed to be doing. But whatever the case is, these individuals are doing this for their own profit. And Peter says, understand this, God's going to judge people like this. You know, you may get frustrated that they're getting away with it, but God's going to judge them. You say, how do you know this? Well, verse 4, for if God spared not the angels that sinned, cast them down to hell, delivered them into the chasms of darkness to be reserved into judgment, and spared not the old world, but saved Noah, the eighth person, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood upon the world of the ungodly, and turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemned them with an overthrow, making them an ensample unto those that after should live ungodly. I mean, you go through, and we've got all these stories from Genesis that we've kind of gone through. Uh, You have Satan who's tempting Adam and Eve, and there's something in the background of the story where God reserves certain angels for judgment. The whole world is only has every evil imagination. Uh, Everything they think about is only evil continually. And God says, okay, I'm going to wipe it out with a flood. You get to Sodom and Gomorrah, and it's one of the worst cities. It's a Canaanite city. Uh, We talked a little bit about this where God curses uh, the Canaanites and what they're doing is just giving full vent to their desires. And God judges that city and God says, listen, this is an example for future generations to realize you live in a way that's opposite of what God wants to and that he will eventually judge. But in the midst of that, he just kind of throws us out because some people might go, well, do I get caught up in this judgment too? And he uses an example that, I mean, I'm working on, I eventually get this done, my doctorate, but one of the characters I deal with is Lot. And we would never assume by the finality of his actions that he was what we would say a Christian. He is, by this passage. You look at what it says about him. In the midst of the judgment of Simon Moore, and delivered just Lot, vexed with the filthy conversation of the wicked, for that righteous man dwelling among them and seeing and hearing vexed his righteous soul from day to day with their unlawful deeds. The Lord knoweth how to deliver the godly out of temptations and to reserve the unjust unto the day of judgment to be punished. What you have right in the middle of this, he just says, I took Lot and rescued him out of this. I know how to get people that are mine out of judgment. Kind of go, wow, I wouldn't have used Lot as an example. I think we're going to be surprised by the people we see in heaven. I think we're going to be surprised by the people we don't see in heaven. Okay. Sometimes we, you know, we're dogmatic about certain things. And you're like, eh. New Testament commentary makes it very clear. Lot, righteous man. You see this, the judgment of false teachers is certain. 
Peter cited stories of the Old Testament to show that judgment will come. God judged angels, world of Noah, Sodom and Gomorrah. Believers can be comforted that even though God judges the sinful world, he rescues his followers. Lot was used as an example for this. Now, Peter gets into very colorful pictures at this point because, you know, we remember pictures and illustrations a whole lot easier. Uh, and uh, you probably sometimes wish, you know, I wish he had more illustrations. I'm not really that type of person. I'm just kind of explain things or whatever. But uh, illustrations help sometimes. Um, and what Peter does is that he goes through and goes, okay, let me give you illustrations of what these false teachers are like. Okay, I'm going to compare them to certain things. Okay, these are, verse 10, chiefly them that walk after the flesh and the lust of uncleanness. They despise government. Presumptions are they, self-willed. They're not afraid to speak evil of dignities. Whereas angels, which are greater in power and might, bring not railing accusation against them before the Lord. Okay, false teachers have this bravado about them that they say all sorts of things and they have this almost arrogant style that they will say things against God. And Peter just writes, listen, angels, even with the devil, are careful about their accusations. They're not haughty. They're not arrogant. Okay? You're like, well, okay. Um, But look at this, verse 12. These, as natural brute beasts made to be taken and destroyed, speak evil of the things that understand not and shall utterly perish in their own corruption. These ones are like just wild animals. Brutish, violent. You know, you can't reason with creatures like this. This is why you eventually take them out and have them, whatever, euthanized, destroyed, put to sleep. Okay? You get an animal like that that is uncontrollable and you eventually have to do this. And living in an agricultural society, they would have been familiar with this type of creature, an animal that was uncontrollable. And so they're destructive and unclean like wild beasts. Okay? That's one picture he uses of these teachers. Um, verse 13 these shall receive the reward of unrighteousness as they that count it pleasure to riot in the daytime. You didn't riot in the daytime, you riot at night. That's why you have all your parties typically at night. But these are so braggadocious that they have parties during the day. Um, Spots they are and blemishes, sporting themselves with their own deceivings while they feast with you. You know, you look at them and it's obvious that there is, you know, you ever have a, a tablecloth and there's this, you know, there's a spot on it? Somebody spilled something and it's obvious. Well, it should be obvious that these people are wrong. But then this, having eyes full of adultery and that cannot cease from sinning, beguiling unstable souls and heart they have exercised with covetous practice, cursed children. Okay, children of the curse. These are people like the Canaanites, like Cain. They're deserving of God's judgment. Uh, which have forsaken the way and have gone astray following the way of whoa, Balaam, the son of Bezor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness, but was rebuked for his iniquity, the dumb ass speaking of man's voice forbade the madness of the prophet. You're sitting there going, these people are so wild and they don't pay attention to things. They go and do whatever they want that God sometimes uses unusual means to get their attention. In this case, Balaam 
You know, he gets mad at his donkey in the middle of the day and, and his donkey has done harm to him and he's about to beat the donkey to death and the donkey starts talking to him. For a temporary time, God got Balaam's attention, but it was only through a donkey that he would pay attention. Um, here you have this, verse 17. These are wells without water, clouds that are carried with a tempest to whom the mist of darkness is reserved forever. I mean, they are like clouds and wells, okay? When you had clouds back in the land of Israel, if you have clouds, there's a storm coming typically. You don't get a lot of heavy clouds like rain clouds, and if you do that, they start to panic. We had that happen when we were over there. There's like, oh no, rainstorm. We could get washed out. Um, Or you go to a well and you expect water to be in there. What these are, they're supposed to be religious teachers that have something that is valuable to people for eternity, and when you come to them, you find out there's nothing there. It's empty. It's fluff, we might say. And these individuals will one day be destroyed physically and will be punished, as we had in this passage, eternally. These teachers are in real danger because they have had the opportunity to understand things about Christ and Christianity. However, they are not saved and return back to their natural lives. God seems to have greater judgment for individuals like this. Okay, look at how he describes these teachers. Verse 20, for if after they have escaped the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ... They are again entangled therein and overcome. The latter end is worse with them from the beginning, for it had been better for them to not have known the way of righteousness than after they have known it to turn from the holy commandment delivered unto them. But it is happened unto them according to the true proverb, the dog is turned to his own vomit again, and the sow was washed to her wallowing in the mire. What it's simply saying is this. Here you got these false teachers that have gotten some religious training. They've been around Christ. They've heard this teaching. But they turn from it. You know why? Because they aren't saved. They're still a dog. They're still a pig. And what they do is they go back to the abominations and filth of the world as a dog does return to its vomit, and it will. And if you've had pigs, you know you can clean up a pig, but they're going to go and look and say, hey, there is a great big pile of mud there. I'm going to go and jump in that. So it is with these false teachers because they're not saved, but they have a knowledge of Christianity. But they don't like it. They turn from it, and they come up with different ways to, to try and express who God is and who His Son is that God says it would be better for them to have never come across Christianity, which is an indicator that God does have different levels of judgment in hell. And I don't even know how to, how to explain this, but he does in certain times in the Gospels go, woe unto you Chorazin, Bethsaida, Capernaum, if the works had been done in you that had been done in, had been done in Sodom and Gomorrah. No. I mean, these, these places they're saying, you know, they, they didn't have a Bible. You did. You had a walking Christ that came through your town. They didn't have that. It's going to be greater judgment to you because you had those opportunities. So it is for these individuals. So the the false teacher, greater judgment for them. So what you have in chapters 3, 1 through 18 is that you have a knowledge of the future. 
Okay, if you know your scriptures and you've gone through it, you have some understanding that at least this is going to happen, regardless of what your, you know, your eschatological views are, you know the Lord's coming back. He's coming again. And what you have in chapters 3, 1 through 18, is simply this, is that these false teachers, what they like doing is that they love to question Christ's return. Is he really going to come back? I don't think so. You read uh, verse, <clears throat> verse 2 of chapter 3. It says this, "...that ye be mindful of the words which are spoken by the holy prophets, and the commandment of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior." So there he's connecting the prophets and the apostles being on equal levels. So what they say, equal level. Verse 3, "...knowing this first, that there shall come in the last days..." Scoffers, people make jokes, mock, "...walking after their own lust and saying..." Where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. What do they question? They say that Christ's return is delayed, or it's not really going to happen, and that creation has continued undisturbed for generations. So really what they're questioning is this, is going, hey, everything's just continued on it's just you know the whole process over billions and billions of years it's just kind of continuing on it's gonna keep going like this till you know the whole earth flames out sun gets too large and cooks us and you know we have to this is this is what you have and they say there's there's never you know there's never been a time where creation was upset oh yeah i mean you, you go, okay, if you do this, the false teachers are willingly ignorant of what God's word says and what the world records. The Bible declares the nature, of Noah's flood, uh, the nature of Noah's flood and the observation of the world indicates the possibility of a worldwide flood. If the world was judged once, he will be able to judge the world again. Look at this statement where he says this, okay, verse 5. These teachers are willingly ignorant of this, that by the word of God the heavens were of old, the earth standing out of the water and in the water, whereby the world that then was suddenly being overflowed. There's this cataclysm is the the idea there, the word that's behind it. There's this cataclysm with water. They all perished. This is why we got fossils on the tops of mountains. Okay, this is why these things are. You can see this. But the heavens and the earth, which are now, by the same word, are kept in store. Okay? They aren't going to get flooded again. God's promised that. But he didn't say, I'm not going to judge the world again. He said, I'm not going to judge it this way. I mean, you read what he says in Noah. I'm not going to judge it this way. You read this, okay? There's a day of judgment coming. And it is going to be uh, that they're kept in store, reserved in the fire, and the day of judgment, and the perdition of ungodly men. Okay? What happens is that the next time the world is uh, judged, it'll be by fire. This place is going to take place in Revelation chapter 20. This event takes place after mankind's had a thousand years with satan locked up in the abyss and then satan suddenly released and you have a whole group of people who have lived a thousand years in peace have been born into this that are going to rebel against christ even though they've been able to see him talk to him visit him they're going to rebel against him and rise up against him and then all of a sudden in an instant they're going to gather and they're going to do battle with christ and in an instant everything ceases 
vaporization of everything. And instantaneously, the next event that happens is that all those that have not followed after Christ are standing before the great white throne judgment. There's no place to hide. The universe they've been a part of, gone. And so here you've got this judgment taking place. Then, what you have is this, is that verse 9, or verse 8, Peter answers the question, well, it seems like the Lord's not come back yet. You know, you keep saying he's going to come again. Now, think about Peter's time. It's been 20 years. We've gone 2,000, okay? 20, 30 years when he's writing this, that the Lord had gone away. But here he says this, verse 8, but beloved, be not ignorant of this one thing, that one day is with the Lord as a thousand years, and a thousand years is a day. Realize this, that the Lord is not bound by time. He's eternal. Okay, for him, day, thousand years, you know, he, he lives outside of time. He's in eternity. But it's not that he's just going, oh, I missed my, you know, I missed the, the time clock here. But it, it's really not a long time to him. Uh, and for him, you read in verse 9, the Lord is not slack or delaying or loitering about concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to us were not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. You want to know why God's held off coming back? Because he's already revealed in the scripture that he is a God who is merciful and gracious, long-suffering, abundant in goodness and truth. A statement he made to Moses. He's long-suffering. God's holding his breath before he breathes out judgment. This is why wrath is not how we view wrath in our life. We may have seen people just blow up and get angry and this type of thing, but God's wrath is delayed and steady, and then when he does judge, it's even keeled. He's promised this. He's going to do it, but he's giving people a chance to do what? To repent. It's not that God's, oh, you know, I forgot about coming back. No, he's giving people time. Time to repent. Now, this is the case. Reason seeming to delay God, does not experience this. To him, a day is like a thousand years of mankind. There is a blessing to be found in God's delay. Mankind is given the opportunity to repent due to God's long-suffering um, in this characteristic. Now, time is limited, but here we have this, that the future judgment will, not come as a surpri- or will come as a surprise just as Noah's flood surprised his generation. The day of the Lord, verse 10, will come as a thief in the night in the which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise. The elements will melt with a fervent heat. The earth also and the works that are in it therein shall be burned up. Seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved, what manner of persons ought ye to be in all holy conversation and godliness, looking for and hastening into the coming day of the Lord, wherein the heavens being on fire shall be dissolved, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. What you have is this. If the believer looks forward to a new heaven and a new earth, it affects the way you live right now. It's not just merely you have this smugness about, hey, I know what's going to happen. <laughs> no, it's this. There are a whole bunch of people that are going to end up being consumed by eternal fire. So should I not live a life that is as we had at the beginning? I have all things that pertain unto life and godliness. Should I live in a way that is pleasing to God and is impacting the people around me in life? That's what Peter kind of closes with. We look forward to a new heaven and a new earth, but we live now here as people that are headed there. And so as you close it out, you have this. 
Can God be long-suffering with false teachers? The answer is absolutely. Because you have this whole thing, and uh, he gets through this. He talks about the false teachers, but then he says this, Wherefore, beloved, verse 14, see you look for such things. Be diligent that you may be found of him in peace without spot and blameless, and account that the long-suffering our Lord is salvation. Okay, the, the Lord suffers long so people can get saved. And then he says this, even as our beloved brother Paul, wait a second, Paul was a man who persecuted the church and he just kind of throws us in here and he has Paul's name there. He's going a different direction, but you're kind of going, wait, yeah, God was long-suffering with Paul. But he says this, even as our brother Paul, also according to the wisdom given unto him, hath written unto you and also in all of his epistles, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to be understood, which they that are unlearned and unstable rest as they do also the other scriptures unto their own destruction. Now, people have taken this and people in Greek class have gone, (laughs) yeah, we understand. Uh, We've had to translate Paul's writings and they're hard to translate. Peter's really easy to translate. John's really easy to translate. Sometimes you get to Paul and you're just like, man, he's got sentences that go on for 20 verses. But what happens is some people take what he's written, he writes the same things that Peter's writing here, and people rest what he's saying to their own destruction and danger. So believers need to solidify their understanding of the Scriptures so that they do not fall. Don't twist the Scriptures, know what the Scriptures say, believe what they say, and then at the end, Peter just gives this final statement, which is that thing that we quoted at Camp Joy over and over again. It's his final benediction and prayer, just simply saying this, okay, we don't want you to be like the false teachers. We want you to know what you're doing and know your relationship with God. Verse 18, but grow in grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be glory both now and forever. Amen. And uh, so you do this to, to the end and you pray for the help to grow in grace and the knowledge and you keep doing this until the day the Lord calls you home or he comes back, one of the two. And so Peter's writing to people that are about to go through fiery persecution themselves. But he's just simply saying, you know certain things, you won't be moved. Stay with the scripture that you know and continue to grow in it. Lord, we thank you. Uh, for this book, a man who suffered much for your glory, uh, brought many to Christ as a result of uh, that, but a man who also at the end of his life was warning us to be ready uh, for occasions where the world just turns upside down and uh, is opposed to everything that you've declared for generations in your word. Help us to be solid in our knowledge, both a head knowledge, but also experientially of what your scriptures say, that we would not be moved by those false teachers that will so readily appear, uh, especially as we get closer and closer to the end of the age. Uh, Help us to grow in grace in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And in his name we pray. Amen.